So the question that has governed our conversation over the last number of weeks, um, in my opinion, we haven't phrased it this way, but in my opinion, the question could be very adequately phrased like this. What would the entire endeavor of faith look like if all of it was conceived looking through the lens of love? What would a life of faith look like if the only way that faith ever looked at anything was to look at it through the lens of love? This is really what it is that we've been talking about. And we've been talking about it primarily, not uh, surprising to anybody, I hope, that we've been talking about it primarily because this seems to me to be how the Bible phrases or frames the entire conversation about faith. In Galatians chapter 5 or 6, Jeff read this a a couple of weeks ago, it says this. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And this series has really, in effect, been about the intersection between those two things, between faith and love. Because on the one hand, we have talked very intentionally, deliberately, and exhaustively about the need for a robust faith. There is a faith to be had. The faith, um, the way I'm using the word, it would sort of refer to the Godward direction of our spirituality. And we've talked at length about what it looks like for us to become fully convinced through you know, the deep exploration of Scripture in conversation with the community of faith as broadly conceived as possible, including the traditions and the histories of the church, the, the, the scriptures in conversation with the community of faith, including reflection on, Ryan, uh, on reason and on truth that comes out of the sciences, as well as my own personal experiences and encounters with the Holy Spirit, scripture, tradition, or, or faith, the community of faith, science and reason and personal experience coming together in us to form deep and strong convictions about what it is that we believe God wants us to believe and how God wants us to behave. And, and the role of faith is to become fully convinced of what it is God wants us to believe and how he wants us to behave and then to live consistently with those beliefs. That, I said last week, was the lion's share, the bulk uh, if not all of what it means to love God with all of your heart and with all of your soul or yourself, with all of your mind, with all of your strength and energy and enthusiasm, and so on. That's the faith. But according to Paul in Galatians and what we've talked about in this series, is the idea that the only appropriate manifestation of that faith is love. Paul says the only, that's the only thing that counts. That's the only thing that counts to God. That's the only thing that counts as faith. That is the only and the greatest commandment is to love. That is the only measure of faithfulness. That is the only thing worth doing. And without love, there is no thing worth doing. That the only thing that counts is that we take our faith our convictions about how we're to believe and how we're to behave, and we live them out in a posture with each other that only ever communicates to the other person that you are of insurpassable value to both God and me by opening our lives and our homes and our hearts to embracing each other 
to inviting each other in in a way that comes without any disdain or contempt or any condemnation or judgment for those who disagree with us. We invite them in, communicating that we are humbled and honored that the other person would consider us worthy to be a part of their life. And we posture ourselves as an ally to each other's faith, asking ourselves the question about what we can learn from the other person about our own journey of faith. That's the only thing that counts. Is that we have a deep, strong, robust, and abiding faith that only ever always expresses itself in the form of love. And so as we come now around to the end of this series, I want us one more time to ask the question of what that love looks like. And in asking the question, I'm not, a, I'm not a big poetry guy, but I came across this quote from T.S. Eliot this week. T.S. Eliot says, we shall not cease from, from exploration. And the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and to know the place for the first time. We've been on an exploration of what love beyond belief looks like. And the end of our exploration is to arrive right back at the beginning, right back at the place where we started, and that is with Jesus. Because as I thought about it this week, and I thought, how do we bring this series to a close? How do we try one more time to just wrap our arms around this love that God is calling us to live as the greatest and only commandment that he's left us? How do we wrap this around, our, our arms around it? And the verse that came to my mind was this. 1 John chapter 4, verse 9, it says this. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. John says, if you want a working definition of love, if you want to know what it is that love is, the way God defines love, if you want to understand love or ask yourself at any moment in time, what would be the loving thing to do? John says, there's only one picture that you need to have in your mind that will serve as a definition for all time of what love means. And that picture is Jesus on the cross. Jesus on the cross is the only definition of love that you will ever need. I've been reading a, a book about this recently um, by a guy by the name of Michael Gorman who wrote a book whose whole purpose is to say that our entire lives should be lived in the shape of Jesus hanging on the cross. Our lives should reflect cross-shaped Love, which Gorman says has these characteristics. He says it is fundamentally others-centered. And if you think about it, this whole endeavor that we're going to celebrate in five days of Jesus coming to earth as a human being to live a life on this planet, most of in, in, in obscurity, part of it in largely criticism, um, only to be tortured to death on the cross. There wasn't a lot of that that Jesus was in it for himself. Jesus wasn't getting a lot out of that entire endeavor personally. That had very little to do with his own personal agenda of what he hoped to see happen with his own existence. This had only ever had anything to do with everybody else that wasn't Jesus. 
It is fundamentally other-centered. A cross-shaped love, Gorman says, is fundamentally sacrificial. When you think about what Jesus gave up, power and position and honor, the fact that he gave up heaven, the fact that he set aside his godness in order to appear on earth as a human being, humiliated, misunderstood, unrecognized, unfairly criticized at nearly all points, ironically, for not being godly enough. Um, Jesus gave up reputation, gave up power, position. He gave up everything. He gave it up everything as the fundamental act of love. Gorman says cross-shaped love is absolutely and fundamentally inclusive. Jesus hanging on the cross is not excluding any human being as the target of the love that he is expressing on the cross. There are some people who are going to want to tell you um, from some theological traditions that Jesus only died for some of us. Don't ever believe them. The, The love of Jesus on the cross is fundamentally inclusive. It is aimed at everybody indiscriminately. Gorman says the love of Jesus hanging on the cross is a love that is uh, fundamentally obedient. It is a love of obedience. Jesus says he only ever does what his father tells him to do. He only ever does what he sees his father doing. And since the Bible tells us that God is love, love is the only thing that God ever tells Jesus to do. And so to love is to be obedient to God. To lack love is to be disobedient to God, which is why the book of Philippians says that Jesus was obedient all the way to death on the cross. It was the obedience of love that carried Jesus all the way to the cross because his entire existence was fundamentally devoted to living out the agenda of the Father, which is only ever love. Jesus on the cross is living a love, Gorman says, that is fundamentally victimized, willing to be victimized. I'd never really thought about it through this lens before. But Gorman says, think about it, in in being nailed to the cross as the victim, Jesus is de-victimizing everybody else who deserves to be nailed to the cross. In fact, the language he uses is Jesus. See, there are people in our culture, I'll say it this way, there are people in our culture who are constantly being crucified, unjustly crucified as Jesus was. And so Jesus comes in as the victim who is most unjustly crucified. And by being unjustly crucified, Jesus rescues everybody else that society crucifies. It's kind of the love that gets in between the bully and his victim so the victim can run away who takes the licks for somebody else to set them free. Finally, Gorman says the love of Jesus on the cross is a love that is fundamentally enduring and persevering. It is unbreakable and unshakable. It never gives up no matter the cost to itself. This is what love looks like. Others-oriented, sacrificial, inclusive, obedient, victimized, and enduring. Unbreakable, unshakable, and never giving up. And that is not just the love that motivated the way Jesus died. It was that love that is fundamental to the core of who God is. And so it is that love that motivated everything about how Jesus lived. Just go and read the stories again. Go and read the stories again through the lens of love. And you'll find them. 
Here's a woman caught in the act, caught with someone else's husband, brought to Jesus by the religious crowd who wants to shame her publicly and demands that Jesus pronounce a word of condemnation over her. But here's Jesus who instead proclaims a word of public shame on the religious crowd for their hypocrisy. Sinners condemning sinners for their sin. How hypocritical can you be? And only ever defending the dignity of this woman, standing up for her in a way that allows her to go free and to live a different kind of life. Read the stories. Here's a man. He's a crook and a thug. He's a shady businessman who has developed a reputation in the community for his bully tactics and for his predatory business practices by which he has regularly taken money from the pockets and given it to the 1% of whom he belongs. He's made himself rich on the backs of the poor, universally hated by the entire community. Here's Jesus inviting himself to that man's house, inviting himself into his home and into his life and into his heart, inviting himself as a way of moving towards rather than moving away with everybody else because this is what Jesus' love does. The crowd be darned. Jesus' love moves towards. Here's a woman. She's desperate for love and has left a a trail of shattered relationships in her wake. She's been married five times. She's now living with a guy that I'm not sure she loves. Ostracized by the entire community, she bumps into Jesus by accident while avoiding everybody else. And the second they interact, she realizes that social taboo says that she is of the wrong gender, the wrong race, and the wrong religion to have a conversation with a Jewish rabbi. And she assumes that he will want nothing to do with her. But here's Jesus. Social convention, be darned. Doesn't care about his reputation. Doesn't care about social convention. Only cares about this woman. His heart breaks over her heartbreak. And he moves toward her in love. In hoping to release in her a life that can lead her towards God's But it's not just those who find themselves on the margins of society. It's the religious leaders themselves who were at the center of social life. Here's a man with impeccable religious credentials. 
a man who knows the scriptures inside and out, a man whose life is blameless according to what's written in here, a man who is fundamentally convinced, who is certain that he has both the mind and the heart of God, a man who has made a habit of criticizing and condemning the way other people believe and behave when they believe and behave differently than he does. And here's Jesus inviting himself into this man's home. Inviting himself into this man's life and into this man's heart and inviting the man into a life of, gently inviting him into a life of humble self-reflection hoping to guide this man from religion to love. Here's another man known by the crowds as one who is able to compellingly teach the scriptures to explain to everybody else what it says about the truth in, in God's word, but who deep in his heart is, is living with pretty fundamental levels of doubt, who wonders whether he hasn't gotten it all wrong himself. And here's Jesus agreeing to meet this public figure at night to spare this man's reputation, to have a patient and prodding conversation to invite this man into deeper considerations of the truth of God's love. Saying to him, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. See, this was the life of Jesus. This cross-shaped love that didn't dictate only how he died, but that dictated everything about how he lived. This cross-shaped love that was always, only ever, others-oriented and sacrificial and inclusive and obedient and, and willing to be victimized for somebody else's sake and persevering and enduring until the very end. And then Jesus says to us in Luke chapter 14, verse 27, he says, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Jesus says to us, if you want to follow me, if you want a faith that follows along behind me, then pick up a cross and start to live the same kind of cross-shaped love that defined everything about my life and drove me straight to the cross in my death where Jesus literally loved the world to death. If you want to follow me, if you want to put your faith in me, you must do it by following me in a cross-shaped I wonder how many in the course of this series have been confronted by the others-oriented nature of love. In contrast to the self-oriented nature in which many of us live most of the time. Confronted with the question of just how much of our life is directed towards the benefit, spiritual and otherwise, of other people who aren't me. 
I wonder how many in the course of this series haven't been confronted at some point with the sacrificial nature of love. Just how fundamentally unwilling we are to give up anything. To give up security, to give up status or standing, to give up our rightness for the sake of loving somebody else. To be humiliated and misunderstood and unrecognized as a follower of Jesus and even criticized for our lack of godliness because of the way we're choosing to love as we think God would. I wonder how many of us have been confronted at some point in this series with the inclusive nature of love, coming face to face with the reality that while we may be perfectly content to love these kinds of people, there really is nothing in us that at any level desires to love these kinds of people. Or how many of us have been confronted somewhere in this series with the obedient nature of love. The idea, like Jeff said two weeks ago, that the greatest heresy in the Christian faith is to be unloving. That to live a life of obedience is to love and to not love is to live a life of disobedience to the cause of Christ, to the person of God. And we realize, maybe, if we're honest, just how disobedient we sometimes choose to be. Or I wonder how many of us have been confronted by that aspect of love that is willing to be victimized for somebody else. See, there are people all around us all the time who have been playing the victim, who haven't just been playing the victim, but who have been victimized. And the love of Christ is to step in the middle and to be willing to take on ourselves that victimization in order to spare somebody else from that pain. And we realize just how little we're willing to stick our necks out for the sake of somebody else to rescue them from their pain that really naturally doesn't affect us very much. I wonder whether any of us have been confronted by the enduring, persevering, unshakable, unbreakable nature of the love of Christ on the cross that just won't give up no matter the cost. And we start to realize and reflect on just how easily we in our love peter out, fade away, walk away and give up on loving those around us. Because this is the invitation of Jesus. In the words of John, starting in verse 7, Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God, and whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. It's as simple as that. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us. God has been made manifest in us. God becomes real and tangible among us. And his love is made complete in us. 
Friends, the truth of the matter is none of us, none of us will ever learn to love people in the Jesus cross-shaped kind of love until we ourselves have embraced the Jesus cross-shaped kind of love with which God has loved us. None of us are able to pour out that cross-shaped love on others until we have drunk in the cross-shaped love that Christ has poured out for us. And so this morning as we close, as we close the morning, as we close the series, as we close the Advent season of preparing for the coming of Christmas, we want to take some minutes and drink in the cross-shaped love of Christ by taking the Lord's Supper together. And as you do, as you come to the table, as you take the bread, as you drink the juice, simultaneously I want you to be drinking in the love that Christ has poured out for you and I want you to be praying that that love would not only fill you but flow through you and become the love that is the only expression of the faith to which Christ has called us to live. Where the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. Let's pray together for the cup and for the bread. Heavenly Father, we come here today knowing we're here because we know how desperately we need your love. That we ourselves have not been who we want to be. We have not been who you have called us to be. In short, we have not been people whose lives have been defined by love. We've allowed all sorts of other things to get in the way. Busyness, distraction, um, pettiness, and even religion. Even faith. We come, God, as a community, repenting of our lack of love. Begging your forgiveness. And asking you to fill us up with the cross-shaped love of Jesus so that we can become the kind of community known for the way that we love beyond belief. We pray through Jesus Christ, your son who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit as one God forever and ever.